Welcome to So Many Bits. I'm your host, Bill Nielsen, and joining me once again from this palatial VoIP line in the middle of the internet is Shelby Mongan. Shelby, how are you? You know, I'm doing okay. This should be the season, I will say, this should be the season for hiding from the heat and staying inside and playing video games, and I have been able to do almost none of that lately. So it's a little bit of a bummer, but I'm hoping I will get back to my indoor kid dreams very soon. Some people may be surprised to know that there is actually only about six weeks in the year where it's appropriate to be outside, and for the rest, you should spend it indoors playing video games. Yeah, and those six weeks are in, like, September. <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. I know. No, I, I have never been a warm person. This is why I have moved dramatically north in our country. But, I yeah, we've been very busy out doing things outside and, and moving and doing all kinds of stuff. So I am very excited to settle in and have my television and all of my comforts set back up and, and ready to go. The Beat Sabering will commence as soon as the last box drops. Exactly. I'm very, I know I haven't, I actually legitimately haven't, I haven't played Beat Saber in two weeks and it is, I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to lose all my skill. I am, it's very sad. So I'm excited to get back to that this week. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely be talking about games we've been getting into lately uh, in the future. But later on in today's episode, I'll be talking with Alistair Aitchison. Alistair, among other projects, contributed the book ritual to last year's BitBash Festival here in Chicago. We'll discuss that along with several other projects he's completed over the past decade. But first, Shelby, you and I have to do some screen watching. I was outside watching some dear frolic. You don't even care about the outside, do you? Oh, Lord, yes. My thread of weird children's entertainment continues on this show. Were you in the right age group to have watched this? No, I wasn't. It was a, I was a little too old for it. I, be, I think. I don't actually know when it technically aired. Um, actually, I was meaning to check that. I will look that up. But um, no, I, I, this definitely I just missed me. The only thread I have to the show is that the one uh, young girl was in School of Rock. So I'd seen School of Rock. And then, you know, I was like, oh, that girl's in this show. And of course... We're talking about iCarly. iCarly. Which is like, in and of itself, I think thinking about the time. So this show started in 2007. So yeah, I was way, I was definitely too old for this. But it's a really, really fascinating show construct. Like, it's very much of the late aughts, early 2010s. Maybe I was not fully in touch, but at this point, the idea of the show where, like, her iCarly and her friend, not iCarly, they're doing a web series? Yes. Like, that seems like it was ahead of its time. Yeah, it was a little bit. I mean, so 2007 would have put it at... The initial creators on YouTube, the initial folks who who were really making that vlogging 
um, who are kind of blazing that trail started around 20 or 2007. So, and, and there was some video, you know, online video and stuff, but I think it was a little bit prescient. It is surprising that they were a little bit more ahead of the curve than other, maybe a lot of other teen or tween shows, I think tend to be a little bit late on the uptake there. Yeah, yeah. Like I would expect that at this time there would be someone, she's like, I don't know, they'd be like videotaping skateboard tricks in the parking lot behind the high school. Right, maybe doing some YouTube or something. Maybe doing like, but again, I guess I guess they can't say YouTube, which is part of it. But I do think that this was a hallmark of a lot of teenish shows at this time was like some tech, like slightly more tech fluency. Because I think there was some of that in Lizzie McGuire too, which is a little bit older. That's a little bit, that was more in my space. Not the website, my personal time space. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I think there's to some degree that's there. And, and they, yeah, I think they just kind of hit perfectly on the timing of that kind of genre of cool internet using and like very, very popular. In the episode, Garley mentions that they have like hundreds of thousands of viewers, which is nuts. That's very hard to grasp. Especially at that time. But yeah, so the show ran for a while, too. It was well-loved, as far as I know, by the kids that were around that age time, but it was mostly just loud, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, like, a lot of the acting on the show was just people screaming and yelling at each other. It bums me out that the show... Because that's a sign that they just don't think that kids are very smart and that they just need you to yell in order to entertain them and that's a bummer because kids are not that dumb so it was all just especially her older brother the whole acting was all just like how much yelling can you do there was a a couple scenes that jump out to me like uh when the older brother like wheels in the arcade machine and then like carly stands there and just like asks these very boilerplate questions about like what the machine is and like lays down the entire track of the plot for the episode and the, in the a plot. It's like, wow, yeah. you just, you really couldn't think of any like inventive way to explain all this. Could you? Yeah. Well, but you know, we should think of an inventive way to explain this episode so that people know what the heck we're talking about. That is a good idea. So I'm imagining that we'll scatter it throughout the rest of the episode. Like I'll have like these backwards sections that you have to back mask to hear like what the actual thing going on here is or maybe i'll put out a statement later where like some of the letters are capitalized and if you put all the capitalized letters together it'll do the plot i like uh i like uh so many bits uh arg i did the heroes arg back actually around the time that this show started so you know let's just keep it really on on brand and theme oh but that takes a lot of work so yeah i'll just the uh the episode begins they uh they're talking about uh they do their an episode of their show and then for for no reason i can ascertain because it has no bearing to anything else that goes on as they talk about baths and taking baths versus showers yeah it's it's one of those stream of consciousness things i i suppose so yeah and then uh the one the dude gets a chain letter which I guess, yeah, that was still a thing that happened with emails. It's like chain letters got forwarded to you. And he's advised like, oh, you have to forward the chain letter or bad luck happens. Oh, man. Yeah, that feeling of rem- the remembering of a chain letter and-, and that feeling of getting them and like 
the even if you're being like if you're pretty skeptical that like tiny feeling in the back of your brain of like but maybe there is a curse and i should maybe do something um was it was was weirdly nostalgic yeah because like what's the harm it's an investment of like two seconds of time and then the the risk is immense if you don't right you, you, the risk is death you might as well forward it <laughs> I've never quite understood the the idea of writing those things in the first place. Like, I guess, is it just like wanting to wield power over people? Because it's not like an email scam where you're trying to get money out of it and you're not sending a virus around necessarily. So, like, what do you get out of making people forward this email about Consuela's curse? I don't understand. It's like a it's like a primitive meme almost. Yeah, but, like, why, though? It's just a meme specifically I've never understood. Well, the KRS members don't understand it either. They, they definitely just go along with it. But they do forward that. They do believe to some degree. Except for the dude who's like, no, I'm not going to forward it. And the dude is so charismatic and, like, relevant to the plot that I'm just going to call him the dude. The older brother? Uh, I guess, I, I'm sorry, yep, fair enough. The younger dude. Oh, that's Freddy. I just looked up all the names of the characters. That's Freddy. They're friends that's, and neighbors. That's probably why. So, yeah, <laughs> Freddy does not forward it, which we get paid off later. We switch back, and Spencer, the, I remember Spencer's name, the, the, old, the older brother, he wheels in a musty old arcade machine he found at the dump. And he's an art, I will say, like, he is at the dump because he is a sculptor and an artist and is, like, frequently reclaiming materials. Okay, so there there was some reason that... He, he wasn't just at a dump. Although, to be fair, with the sheer volume of, like, chaos energy that that character is bringing, he might have just been at the dump. But it, there was technically a reason that he was ten, he would go there. I did get a, like, G-rated Kramer vibe from him. Well, and especially, if I think, for part of it, like, that dynamic is always interesting because I, if I, I don't remember the exact construct, but there's some reason their parents don't live with them. I think their father is in the military or something. So there is, it is just them in the household. And so the way that they can tolerate having someone who is an adult authority figure but isn't a parent... And like have some tension in that is just have him be a giant loud child that also kind of provides for them. Uh, like I guess the the freelance artist gig does align with the rest of his personality from what we see. Which is mostly loud noises. Yeah, he's, he's all excited because he found this old uh, arcade machine called Pack Rat, known as uh, Puck Rat in Japan, I believe. <laughs> Yeah, they had to change the arcade machine so that they wouldn't they wouldn't change the the uh, letters on the side to say a swear. Exactly. Yes. That's all iCarly lore, of course. And uh, they he's cleaning up the machine, and I gotta say, if you found a dead raccoon in there, the the first thing when that door opens and the machine moves one inch into the apartment, the first thing would be, what is that horrible smell? Yeah. Also. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to take it inside. Also, the raccoon was... I know this is just because of a gag for a children's show, but my very first, like, cynical thought, especially given the sheer volume of, like, museum people and biologists that I follow on Twitter, was, like, if it's eno- if it was dead long enough to get covered in cobwebs, it would be, like, it would it be in the process of decomposition. It would not look like a regular raccoon that froze in place, which would be right. gross. Like, I'm happy they didn't do that, but... 
it, it would not be like, can you hold this? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it was, it would have been much more upsetting. Now, I will say, Bill, I don't know if you noticed this, the art on the side of the pack rat video, or the video game, the the arcade cabinet, the rat on that cabinet looked suspiciously like Remy the rat from Ratatouille, like reused ass, like flat assets of Remy. And they did, Ratatouille did come out the year previously, but on a different company like it came out with disney and this is from nickelodeon i just like went down a rabbit hole as soon as i saw it because i was baffled i was like that just looks like that just looks like ratatouille that just looks like the ratatouille rat but it can't be because this is it and i like went down a whole roll but maybe that was just me over reading thing i'm looking at the image now and i am getting some of that from the uh the image of the mouse here like especially the face like the, the body type He's a he's a little uh, chunkier than Remy was, but uh, like with the face and that he's eating cheese. Yeah, I can, I can see some Reminess. Yeah, it's very it's very Remy adjacent. That's just me. But anyway, yes. So they bring in the cabinet. He dusts it off. He gets it clean. He gets it working inexplicably. Also, getting old video game cabinets to work is incredibly challenging, especially if you found something in a dumpster or in like an in a um just like a junkyard it's probably in terrible shape at the very least the crt monitor would be almost certainly busted at that point right and if this is such a rare game how did it end up in a junkyard i'm so they're just that i can actually answer because i i listen to a lot of gaming podcasts and people talk about arcade machines and owning an arcade machine is like the biggest boondoggle you could imagine like imagine with your you, you recently do you mind if i say that you recently moved well you said no that's fine <laughs> imagine if you had to take an arcade cabinet like the ones from emporium or headquarters with you to your new place oh. those things are heavy some of them have wheels some of them don't and they're very fragile yeah. and so like a lot of collectors like that'll be like their final piece for their room you know is like their favorite arcade game from when they were a kid as a cabinet. And then they realize they never play it. Like they've played it 50 times and they're done playing it. No one will play it with them because who wants to play like Street Fighter 2 with the guy who owns the Street Fighter 2 cabinet? Right. And it's like, well, now what? <laughs> right. No, that's totally fair. I, I get that. I think it just is surprising to me less that it was that someone wouldn't want it and more that someone wouldn't have sold like what is ostensibly in the iCarly world an original Pac-Man cabinet? There wouldn't be anyone able to sell it if it's a popular enough game that, like, a spoiler alert, news crew burst in to see a potential new high score getting set. That that cabinet would end up in the in the landfill is just baffling to me. That's a fair point. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess that that is a consideration too. Yeah. But anyway, they do get it. They do find it. They clean it up. He flexes inexplicable programming and electronic skills um, to get it working again. And then also flexes like unbelievable gaming skills, too, and just can play for hours and hours on end and apparently is like really good at the game. Yeah. So this whole episode takes place over the course of like a week and a half. And he becomes literal top tier by just playing a, like sleepless nights for a week and a half 
for so let's say he plays maybe 10 hours a day for a week and a half and he has become top tier like it doesn't maybe it's not a very hard record to break maybe i guess that that would present new questions then of like why do we care who sasha striker is but i mean i care who she is but that's for unrelated reasons yeah so he plays the game a lot and misses deadlines which like you know what relatable <laughs> i can i can empathize with wanting to play a game rather than doing work especially if you get a new a new fancy toy that like you've not had before i get that they he's playing the game he's missing all his deadlines but it looks like he's finally gonna stop playing and work on the project until freddie points out that the all-time high score is by this unknown person named sasha striker i will say it is almost it is what so i i don't math very good or efficiently it's like five hundred thousand. so his high score was in the eight hundred thousands initially i don't know why i remember this um and her high score was in the like million couple hundred thousands like it was sig- it was a significant jump between his score his high score that he was very proud of and the world record high score for the game right yeah it's like not remotely up you know he there's no reason to assume that like oh suddenly he's just gonna like be able to close that gap there's a uh, probably a lot of work left to do to get that far if he even having gotten as far as he already has well, luckily, he has less than a week to get that work done, Bill. So it's obviously doable. Oh, yeah. He's fine. He'll be fine. Exactly. It's a savant. So he he's still hooked on the machine. He's uh, supposed to be doing this art project. He gets an extension during like the one like serious scene of the episode where like this art guy shows up and yells at him for not doing the thing he agreed to, which I don't know if you were... Uh, you know, hiring some weird artist in Seattle, you probably would just expect that delays come with the territory. That would, that would be me anyway. Right. Especially because, so that comes out that he is making a uh, sculpture for this guy's wife's birthday and he asked for it on a Sunday and his wife's birthday is the following Saturday. So it seems like clearly he anticipated there to be some delays. You know, that was probably the scene we didn't see is he's like when he's first talking with, Spencer is like, I should give this guy an extra week of cushion without him knowing it. Right, 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 right. So Spencer gets another chance to build the stat or build the sculpture, but of course spends it playing Packrat and trying to beat Sasha Stryker's high score. Meanwhile, apparently the the kids actually go to school. I didn't even I wasn't even sure they would have like a school set. <laughs> and while there like the the one girl Sam has a very good idea. She's like, "Why don't we use the internet and our cloud on the internet to find out who this Sasha Striker is?" Which, like, that's a thing people do all the time now. Like, I have seen similar things happen due to podcasts or or YouTube channels or something being like, "We don't know the answer to this thing, or this thing is missing. Like, help us find it." And then someone does. Also, question: Is that girl's like main character trait is eating food? Yeah, that's it. That's the end of the story. Well, her main character trait <laughs> okay. is like kind of being tomboy, which mostly just means she's kind of mean and likes meat and eating. I could think of no better representation of being male. Yeah, I mean, really, it's it does kind of get to the 
the point of things. But yeah, no, she's a very, I mean, I think this is, keep in mind, this is also season two. Like it's pretty early in the run of things, but she's a pretty one dimensional. There's some bold character choices happening there. And by bold, I mean stupid, but not necessarily on her part. I think that's just the way she was written because again, the writers of the show think that all like 10 year olds are idiots. Yes. Yeah. There, there's another scene that leaps out to me. We'll, we'll, we'll be getting there soon though. So, uh, we cut ahead from the school to back to the apartment and they, they have got Sasha Stryker coming to the apartment now. Okay. So I want to clarify something on this because their idea with this was we told Spencer about the high score. He now wants to beat the high score, which is fine. Like, that is a thing he could get out of his system. But they decide, oh, the only way he can get it out of his system is to find her and have them play a head-to-head battle, which to me is a terrible plan on, like, 12 different levels Um, because her score is recorded, right? So, like, arcade cabinet scores, I've watched King of Kong. I know this is a very... Like, there is some rigor around it. So the score is there. There is a number that he is aiming for. As soon as you introduce her into the mix, then you have to find her, A, but, like, she might not score as high as her highest score. She might beat her highest score. What if he loses? That just fuels his addiction more to keep going. They just are blindly assuming that he is good enough with a high score, like, hundreds of thousands of points under her record, that he's just good enough to be able to beat her as long as they can find her. I wasn't sure that she was even going to care. Like, why would she care? I mean, I guess apparently she did care a lot, but that was far from a guarantee. Well, she was, for all intents and purposes, was a paperboard or like a cardboard cutout of a pretty lady. Like there was no character happening there. She showed up to be beaten and be pretty and then leave. Like that was really the whole character process. So um, but yeah, she spoke maybe 20 words in the entire episode. It was ridiculous. Like the, the annoying, I think that the annoying dude, we'll get to this, but the annoying dude during their, their pack rat battles had more lines than she did. I, th- I think you're right. Like I, I, yeah, their one line that they have together, sorry, is that, uh, it's just her slapping him. So she doesn't say anything then. Yeah. She is, she is a cardboard cutout, which like, yeah, cool. I mean, all right, I guess. And when Sasha shows up, also inexplicably, a bunch of other male nerds show up because somehow, oh, I guess they saw the iCarly show, so that make, that could make sense. But Yeah, that's like, kind of their fault. So they all show up and they're like going to record this momentous esports battle for the gaming news network. And it's uh, Which- Gary hosting it all. I just really, I mostly just watched that and really missed the existence of G4. Um, (laughs) I watched so much G4 when I was younger, and I missed so many things about that show, or about that that entire network. It's funny because they shouldn't have, like, don't burst into somebody's house, but, like, if you are setting a record attempt on a game, you are supposed to have footage of that record attempt so that kind of almost made sense but like you can't just burst into someone's house with a crowd why do you have a crowd where you have a you have a cameraman and a dude on a mic no boom mic so no sound people no directors and just an inexplicable crowd yeah uh so this is 
playing into your they think kids are stupid thing because what they probably could just do is show footage of the game which they very rarely just show footage of the game it's usually just like a very obstructed shot over one of the actors shoulders and like i guess they thought kids are too dumb to know what's happening in this old game if we just try and show them like the scores and stuff so we need to have someone come in with a camera who's recording it mind you the camera isn't recording the game it's recording the crowd and right. the host explains like the stakes of the situation in very plain terms for the viewer the other thing i mean this show obviously everything is heightened so it's a little bit of like magical realism almost in so far as like that's the sort of thing that could happen but yeah it's a little it's a little i guess it's trying to give extra hype and credence to when spencer wins that he he won real good and it was important and there were stakes involved you know i wonder if uh Jeanette McCurdy, the actress who plays Sam, will, uh, if she's on Cameo and I can pay her $150 to tell me video games are stupid. I will chip into that fund if you do that. Research for later. Research for later. There you go. But yes, yeah, so a inexplicable news crew bursts into a private residence with no warning. And they, they watch and Sasha obliterates her old record and like actually improves on it. Pretty yeah. good for someone who presumably hasn't played in like 15 years or whatever. But then Spencer comes back and apparently scores even better. It seems like the game ended as soon as he scored better than her. And I was like, that's not how arcade cabinets work. But okay. Yes, but he did beat her. Okay. She is deeply cool about it. Like way more so than I think she has any right to be. Yeah, I was actually... I mean, it was. it came off so flat almost. She's just like, well... You beat me. I was wondering, I was actually thinking before her score got so high, part of me was like wondering if they had hired a fake Sasha Stryker for him to beat so that like he could just get over it. And her performance led me to that belief, but she scored really, really high. So I'm sure that it was supposed to be the same person. It just, yeah, she just did not seem to care. Yeah, I guess not. And then, like, she also doesn't seem to particularly mind when Spencer, like, awkwardly grabs her by the waist and pulls her over and kisses her. So, I mean, yeah. It's romantic, Bill. What are you talking about? Could they have at least done another take? I mean, maybe it's like Spencer's character is supposed to be that clumsy, but... Oh, no, it was awkward as hell. It was super awkward. Uh, But again, oh, my God, it could have been a lamp. Like, this is a trope. This is a thing. This is like a, a, a... When you're talking about... Um, I mean, more films, but the discussing if a if, if a piece is sexist or a character is is a sexist construction, you ask like can or another or a racist or whatever construction, can they be replaced by a lamp and nothing in the plot changes? And if you replace Sasha Stryker with a lamp who could play Packrat, it's this there's no difference. Like she is there to be very attractive and very 2007 attractive, which is great. Come in, play the game, lose, get kissed, and then leave. And I'm pretty sure she never shows up again on the show. I would be shocked if she did. No, the next time you see her is as the mom in Catching Faith and Catching Faith 2. Ooh, okay. Well, good to know her career kept going, kind of. Her career did keep going. It it caught faith in her ability to keep going. I don't know. Before we go past it, though, I just want to... So there is a 
we mentioned that annoying guy in the crowd when they were doing the world record attempt for pack rat. And I don't, I, I feel like eventually I need to stop being annoyed by these like stereotypical gamer pre- descriptions and like characters that show up in things, but they just always piss me off. But also there is this one, like I think 2020, if it's taught me anything is like some of the moments of real, like real life overlap <laughs> with uh, some of the stuff. So this guy comes on and he's just, he steals the mic from the reporter in order to ask if anyone in the audience would like to be his girlfriend, which like, okay, cool. And then he tries to ask if Sasha Stryker um, has a boyfriend and she slaps him, which was great. I liked her immediately. Um, but then he says, he. this is the part that I was like, oh, I'm uncomfortable at how accurate this sometimes may feel about very, very, very certain sex of people. But later on, he pulls the mic from the reporter again, and he's like, you don't have to like video, you, don't, you just have to be female and have a pulse. And it's like, oh, God, dude, what are you, are you going to put her in your basement? Like, what do you want a girlfriend for if you just need her to be female and have a pulse? They showed this scene to Chuck Lorre. And he's like, no, it's okay. We beat them to market by eight months. We're fine. Right. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is like, it's a stereotype that I find incredibly annoying of the like ongoing video gamers are sad, pathetic dorks. So I guess maybe more than the stereotype was more pronounced because it was still pretty neat. It was more of a niche market than it is uh, now, what, 13 years later. Um, but it got creepy at the end and it was passed off as a joke. And I was like, that's not funny. That sounds like he's going to try to harvest my kidneys. Like gross. Um, yeah, that guy, that guy couldn't suck an egg. I was not a fan. Yeah. He super sucked. And it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was about what you would expect. I think for that stereotype, we, we will reflect on this during the condescension portion of the scoring for sure. (laughs) Yes, for sure. But uh, yeah, the episode still has four minutes left on it somehow, uh, even though they've solved the A-plot pretty much. Uh, there's like some more stuff where I guess Freddy gets back at Sam by like uh, fishing her f- phone with a fake invitation for a date to make up for the fact that she... That was a good prank. She was very mean to him. That was a good prank. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, that that's yeah, that was mean, but yeah. She tried she to kill real... him in traffic, technically. She loosened his bike, um, so it would fall apart while he was riding it, and he was riding down a like a street when it supposedly happened. He faked it, but still, that was very a very much a real possibility. Like she could have just killed this child friend of hers. She yes, it, it was fair. It was fair. Um, but yeah, they have to resolve that good old B. Good, good old B plot still's got to happen. And lastly, Carly, who doesn't do a whole lot in this episode, it's mostly about Spencer, is yeah. uh, finally drawn into playing uh, Pack Rat and stays up all night playing it because she got addicted too. <laughs> Pac-Man's not that addictive of a game. It's fun, but like... Well, I mean, you say that now, but that's only after we got the nationwide vaccine for Pac-Man fever in 1986. Oh, that's fair. No, that's true. That was on the rounds of vaccines I got. That's fair. These are probably like hippie children who haven't gotten all their inoculations. Their anti-vaxxer parents wouldn't let them have them. 
And now this well, is sure, what happens. They, there's a religious exception because the that if someone gets Pac-Man fever, it's intended by God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yes, it's exactly <laughs> Jesus. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's his it's his fault specifically. He'll take it. He's he's taking worse. It's true. Well, Shelby, you know, uh, we didn't. This isn't Bible man length of critical analysis, but we did a pretty good job. I, I think uh, at this point we should go ahead and rate this episode on. The typical three categories, and those are, of course, accuracy, condescension, and entertainment. And as always, we'll begin with accuracy on a scale of 6 to 10, with 6 being completely inaccurate and 10 being lifelike accuracy. How would you rate this episode of iCarly, iStage, and Intervention? Okay, so I think there are two factors to go into this. One is the accuracy of like getting addicted to a video game and especially on a show that is super heightened. And this obviously it's meant to be sort of hyper realistic, over realistic. I think that's very, very relatable. Like I get that. So I don't know, like that goes that's That's a pretty high score for me. But I do want to draw your attention to one specific part of the episode that I noticed that made me laugh so hard. And that was a shot where Spencer is just playing the game very dramatically. He's moving it around. He's talking about dodging the cats. All that stuff is going on. But the shot is of his over his shoulder watching the game. And in the game, in the, shot, in the loop on the television, like the screen in the arcade cabinet, The mouse is just in the bottom left corner, circling an empty block over and over again, nowhere near (laughs) any of the bits he needs to eat or any of the cats. And he's like yelling about how he's doing like he's got all these near misses and he's playing amazing and he's moving the joystick so much and the mouse is just going in a circle in the corner. And I was like, well, that's funny that they put that in there. And then I watched and then like, as the scene continued, that just kept looping. And I was like, someone thought that this was what gameplay looked like was just that forever. Um, And that made me angry. So I'm going to give this one a seven out of anger at at that looped. They made the game. You could play the game on (laughs) iCarly.com after this episode. They could have screen captured the game they made. But they did it. They just had a mouse circling in a corner by himself. I'm so upset. I'm yelling into my microphone. So seven. Screw you, iCarly. Have a what little empathy think? for the production assistant who is told to take time away from getting the, the cast lunch. Look, play this thing for 30 minutes so we can get footage for it. I don't care what you do. Just do something. And they're like, fine. And then they're like, uh-huh, I'm going to get him back. I'm just going to do nothing here. And someone somewhere is going to notice and get upset. It's so good. If you watch, don't watch the episode again. But like, if you watch the episode again, just watch how the screen on the cabinet correlates with what they are saying. Because it almost never does. <laughs> and it's incredible. The sheer lack of coordination there. I guess if they actually, I didn't know they made a real pack rat so like that's up there with like fix it felix in terms of like dedication so i think i gotta give it like at least an i'm gonna give it a nine i feel like that they made the game they made an actual cabinet for it with like actual debatably original art like that shows a lot of uh attention to detail that i have to acknowledge 
Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, this was an era, I don't know if you remember this, this is coming out of an era where a lot of, where A, a lot of TV channel websites were like go-to places for games related to the shows. So like Nickelodeon, Disney, Cartoon Network all had a really robust game, like a lot of Flash games on their um, websites. And this is also like coming out of Neopets being really popular and like other sites like that. So it doesn't actually surprise me that they made an episode. If anything, they probably made an episode to tie in with the game that they made rather than vice versa. The, the only one of those I know for, for from firsthand experience is the SpongeBob cart game, like uh, where he's got to drive the boat over the hills. And it's like literally the most difficult game I've ever played in my life. <laughs> he's really bringing the heat there, Nickelodeon. Next up is uh, Condescension. If you found this episode to be completely non-condescending, give it a six. If you found it to be extremely condescending, give it a ten. That one. Pick the the second the second one you said. The ten. The ten. Screw this episode. It's very condescending. <laughs> it's rude. It's terrible. It's games are addictive apparently. Specifically Pac-Man. And nerds are and game playing people are weird virgins who want to steal your organs i guess and only care that you have a heartbeat and like shut up like harley (laughs) yeah i mean i I gotta go with a 10 also it's yeah it's very condescending like as you correctly pointed out the one dude who's the gamer is extremely weird and wrong and there is just not really any uh good portrayal of games in this episode Right, exactly. Yeah, there's nothing redeeming. Nothing redeeming to playing games, according to this. I guess Sasha turned out all right after she quit playing games, but, you know. That beautiful cardboard cutout (laughs) of a human. She left her soul in the pack rat machine she defeated. But initially, like the old world record one, and she's now just a shell of a woman. (laughs) And lastly, entertainment. If you found this to be completely unentertaining, give it a six. If you found it to be magnificently entertaining, give it a 10. Ironically, the only part of this episode that I found entertaining was the (laughs) B-plot of the chain email bad luck. I found kind of gently entertaining. Um, So I will give this a modicum of credit. Also, there's lots of loud noises and colors, and sometimes I like that. (laughs) So I'm going to give this a 7. It wasn't the least entertaining thing I've ever seen, but I certainly wouldn't go watch another episode of iCarly. It's not for me. It's, it's, not it's, it's not you know what i mean it's literally not made for me this this show about adolescent teenage girls filming a web series who live with the older brother of one i mean here's the thing could that be a series for me i could see how you could do like an interesting youtube show like or like a quibby show or like something like an hbo comedy drama thing but like no this show is aggressively not made for me uh i'm gonna give it a seven because i like that they went to the effort to make an actual arcade cabinet and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> the end. I am only entertained by the existence of that cabinet. Look, uh, it, we we watched an episode of Home Improvement once where they busted out Zaxxon. Zaxxon. It's, the, it's a very, the... very old Sega game. And... No, I'm familiar. I was just trying to do the, the, Tim, oh. the Tim Allen noise, uh, and I can't. So I just kind of barked like a dog a little bit. It sounded like a Scooby-Doo. Uh-huh. So I was that's yeah. why I was like trying to explain. They're kind of the same thing, to be honest. That that sound, the Tim sound, and it's just slightly more gravelly. But yes, no, that that I am familiar with the game. 
But yeah, credit for making your own game, at least. Yeah, there you go. And with that, we're going to go to break. When we come back, I'll be talking with Alistair Aitchison about the book Ritual. And we are back from break. Joining me on this palatial VoIP line in the middle of the internet is Alistair Aitchison. Hello. Alistair is the creator of many different projects, some video games, some uh, live performances. But the thing that drew me to him in this case is that last year at BitBash here in Chicago, I got to see the project he created, The Book Ritual. So, Alistair, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I guess just for people who were not able to see this uh, live demonstration of this game that is currently not available many other places. Could you please describe the book ritual for them? Yeah, sure. Um, So the book ritual is, it's an alternative controller game. So it's played with a kind of strange custom made controller. Um, In this case, the custom made controller is a modified paper shredder. So the paper shredder is kind of depicted as, as a character and connected to the computer by a USB cable and it can detect when paper is going through it. Um, and over the course of the game, uh, the, the game is a conversation that you are having with a book um, of your choice. So if you're playing it at home, it's a game from your bookshelf. Um, if you're playing it on an event, you know, I'll bring a big stack of books with me and you can pick one and uh, have a conversation with it. Uh, so that little book's kind of d- depicted as a character on the screen um, and it asks you questions about it, about yourself um, and your kind of thoughts and feelings and asks you to write inside of it and draw inside of it. It also asks you to tear pages out and put them through the shredder. And the story won't advance until the shredder has detected that you put something through it. So, you know, you start out with this kind of pristine book and over the course of the experience, you'll be tearing pages out, telling it about yourself turning it into, you know, turning it into a little character. It ends up with eyes and a face and things, through little creativity exercises. And I guess, you know, the big thing, the reason it's having this conversation with you is it wants to talk to you about subjects like, you know, I guess, you know, on the subject of grief and loss and guilt. And this process of tearing up a book is kind of a physical way to embody that experience of, you know, losing something maybe through your own action and having to process what that means to you what that feels like to be in that in that experience now i think people are a little bit extra sensitive about destroying books i don't know if they all read fahrenheit 451 in (laughs) high school i mean i have so now did you did it have to be books couldn't it have just been like a notebook or like a, a stack of like composition paper yeah my personal attitude is that Look, if you're not comfortable playing with a book, don't play with a book. You know, I don't like to force people to play in a particular way that makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, But it really is like playing with a book and destroying that book and knowing that's something you kind of shouldn't be doing is a big part of the experience because we all feel guilty about destroying books. We've learned that books are special and books are to be cherished and that, you know... I guess we kind of treat books as sacred objects, but the reality is, like, there are so many books on my bookshelf 
that that I will never read. And there's so many books of my bookshelf that I have read and I'm never going to read again. And there's, and there's, you know, there's bad books. There's books that I haven't enjoyed and wouldn't want anyone else to read because they're not going to enjoy them either. And there's books that I loved. Um, but there's a billion copies of that same book all around the world. The world is not going to miss losing one copy of a book. But we treat it like it's a very important thing. And I think that's something... I wanted to explore with the and you know ask the player to explore with the work you know what does it what does it feel like uh, because it feels like a permanent loss it feels like you know it feels it it creates guilt it creates a sense of you know that you know you're doing something wrong but also why is it wrong you know why is it wrong to lose something that there's a hundred duplicates of in the world why why do we feel grief over losing a physical object the way that we feel grief over losing a person. You know, I'd like to explore that a little more based on this mm. uh, blog post written by a fellow named uh, Alastair Aitchison. <laughs> uh, he wrote, uh, from its conception, I knew I was not making something that could be sold and I was not making something that would make sense to hire for parties. It mm. was a game I needed to make because it said things I needed to say. That's right. Do you think yes. you said the things you needed to say with the book ritual? That's a big question. So where the where the project came from was it was out of a you know a difficult personal experience where um, I thought that someone um, very close to me was going to lose their life. That fortunately did not happen, um, and fortunately that person was alive and well. But you know processing what had happened was very difficult, and you know that kind of figure it I guess trying to figure out my way through a lot of difficult um, emotions I had around that that I really struggled to to convey to other people you know I I could talk about my feelings I could talk about what I felt about what had happened but I you know in doing so I couldn't get to the heart of it um, and I think that like my experience stuff, I guess at that point I'd been making games as a career for about seven or eight years. Making games, in particular games with physical objects, like that was my vocabulary. That was how, you know, that was a language I felt very fluent in. And so saying, well, how about using that as a way in to talk about these feelings and using the kind of the physical embodiment of doing something, you know, of damaging a physical object is something that had, you know, come up in other alt controller games that I'd made. It had come up in my live stage shows in totally different circumstances, you know, much more playful, jovial circumstances. Um, but I think that sort of realizing that these physical objects are kind of special and people have a special connection to the physical and how strongly that mirrored the things that I was, you know, trying to get my, wrap my head around, you know, I had, you know, souvenirs of, you know, my interactions with this person who, uh, you know, um, that this was all wrapped up in. And, you know, if they were gone, I would just have the, um, the physical objects, you know, I wouldn't have that person in my life anymore. I would just have the physical objects. But at the same time, like, how much of my life am I going to spend carting around these physical objects? I guess you could say the analog here with the book ritual is that 
yes, you have destroyed the book itself, but the the author in many cases is still present and mm. the memories you have of reading the book, if you have, are still yeah. present. They're not going anywhere. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So the the physical token, that in particular, that specific reminder is not essential to the process. Yes. Yes. I think that's that's correct. You know, the, the people in our lives and, you know, that, you know, when we do lose important people in our lives and we experience grief around um, around a loss, I think thinking about how they live on in ways that they have, ways that they have influenced us and they have ways that they have changed us and made us who we are, that is a meaningful thing to hold on to. That's a meaningful thing to keep inside you. To tilt this a little bit in the direction of a, ga- a retail game. Yes. <laughs> there are very limited examples I can think of where there are games that allow you to to sacrifice or lose mm. what you've made. I mean, pardon some spoilers here for the Nier series, but one of the <laughs> hallmarks of the Nier games is that after you have beaten them, you yep. there's an option to delete your save data. Yes. You, there's a there's a good reason to do it if you want to do mm. it but i mean it's still it's a very painful thing i think for a lot of people where it's yes. like well but how am i going to know i beat it anymore if i don't <laughs> yes. have the save data and it is funny because it's like you know what are you actually losing at that point what do you you know you are it is just the the token that says you have done it in many ways because you are not going to beat myth for the first time ever again in your life but yeah but it is still a weighty thing i mean i think the thing that was quite interesting in near automata is that in that situation what you were sacrificing was in order to let other people get to the end it was to help other people like the pete is i don't i don't want to am i getting into spoiler territory it's been out for three years. It's, it's been out for three years. But that whole idea of, you know, that your sacrifice of your save data is not is not just, oh, you've lost something that's important to you. Now sit and think about it. When you sacrifice your save data, what that went on to do was to... It created, like, little spaceships that helped the player, helped other players, strangers that you would never meet, would help them through the final section of the game which was the end credits played out like a scrolling shooter and i think that was kind of interesting because that that felt like a real it had a real kind of heart to it that idea that because it wasn't just about taking away it was also about giving um and i think that's like you know you sacrificing your save data so that you may have a little bit more knowledge of what happens in the story is one thing sacrificing your save data so that someone else may get to the end of the game. I think that's, that's got hard to it. Could you imagine any other ways to maybe incorporate this idea of loss into a game that you're willing to disclose? That's quite a big question in a way. I kind of feel like, like with the, (laughs) with the book ritual, I kind of had my conversation with how to do that. And I'm sure there are a lot of other ways, but I guess in a way it's not something I've had to tackle a second time, you know? It's like, not that making the game solved everything and suddenly I understood, you know, the world of grief and was like, 
oh, I am to- totally okay now. You know, that was still an ongoing process. But I think personally as a designer, I'd kind of, in a way, reach a point where it's like, oh, well, if that doesn't communicate it, nothing else will. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> I, you know, can conceptually moved on to other ideas. But I think there is, the special thing is, like, why do you feel bad about losing your save file in a game like Nier? You know, is it because you put a lot of work into it? Is it because, you know, that that save file, you know, corresponds to a particular moment in your life? And the same, you know, with the book, one of the things that went into the kind of design of the conversation that you have with the book, like part of the reason that it's asking you so many questions about yourself and asking you to personalize it is so that you care about this object, you know, you get that partly because a book is a kind of sacred object already. But my hope was that having the conversation with it where you are physically modifying it, regardless of shredding it, is that you are putting yourself in there. And then once you reach the point where you are tearing out pages, like the only pages you've got to let to tear are things that, pages that you've already written your secrets or done your creative pictures on, you know, that's something that you've made a personal connection to because there's an emotional connection to it I mean, and maybe that's actually the the big answer to your question of you know if rather than stepping back from a bit it's not about what is an interesting way to lose something but what is an interesting way to form a connection with something that is impermanent so what i'm hearing is i'm going to have to wait a little longer for Kojima's idea of a self-destructing game cartridge to come to life. <laughs> okay, I've not heard of that idea, and now I want to make one. <laughs> yeah, I guess Hideo Kojima a long time ago proposed a game where if you got game over, the game would self-destruct, or like basically right. just wipe its, all its files from the <laughs> right. disc, you know. I know there was a game, and this was, I mean, going back maybe 10 years now, um, but there was a game that every time you died it would delete a random file from your computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Jeez. I've never played it. I've, you know, I've, I've only ever heard about it, but it sounds fascinating. Um, another um, creator's work who I think deals with a similar thing, Robert Yang. So he does a lot of kind of um, LGBT kind of themed games and sort of uh, BDSM themes as well. And there was one game, Hurt Me Plenty, which is kind of based on a a BDSM situation. If you kind of break the rules of trust with the game, it will lock you out for like 72 hours or something. And you will not be able to play the game for another 72 hours. So you have to, you know, obey the rules of trust, obey the rules of consent. And even at exhibitions, and he, you know, insists he won't take that feature away for exhibitions because that's so important to what the piece has to say you know and if you um so uh, there's photos of like rows of computers at these exhibitions um which are inaccessible which are there to show the game (laughs) and but they're all locked out and that says something that means something because these are all you know these are something that people should be able to access and people should be able to enjoy and people should be able to play with. But someone decided to break the rules of trust. Someone decided to be abusive to the avatar in the game. Someone decided to be a bully to the avatar in the game. 
And that ruined it for everyone. And that says something. That's that's an important message. I would be very fascinated to to see those locked out machines in person. <laughs> yes. It's not of the same uh content but there was a game at at bit bash called ichi's zone we have actually had the guys oh, who made it on i've there. seen ichi's zone so you know you know like yes. it locks you out for an hour every time you don't follow like these very very strict yes. rules yes i remember um i was it was at um a maze in berlin a couple of years ago um and i remember seeing it then seeing it then and there are a crowd of people around it and i went up to you know, touch the mice and have a click around. And they're like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And <laughs> I like, oh God, I think that's just such an interesting interaction. That's like, you know, and it and it threw me into this conversation. It threw me into this interaction with a bunch of strangers. And that was pretty cool. And then they explained to me what was going on and how they'd all been huddled around it to figure it out. And this kind of, but part of the game was protecting the keyboard. Part of the game was making sure that a random stranger didn't come up and ruin it for you all. And like, I like that's fascinating. There's a social dynamic going on there that is created by the rules of this game. And that social dynamic that, you know, creates these kind of unpredictable situations like a crowd of people making a physical wall around a keyboard and mouse so no one can touch it. That's something that wasn't, I presume, wasn't intentionally written in by the designers of the game. That is something that grew organically from the way people interact with that rule set. And that, like, that's fascinating. This was probably as good a time as any to pivot because I, uh, of course, first came to know you through the book ritual. But you have an extensive list of other projects you've worked on. And among them are live performances related to video games and those yep. are including but not limited to go power team the yep. incredible playable show and the scrambled eggman show that is correct yes i guess my my first question then would be just uh what what up how did how did that get started <laughs> um so like my history with you know making video games professionally goes back like to you know 10 years ago making games for the iphone and the ipad where i like to encourage people to cheat and over time these kind of grew into these kind of physical experiences which had people running around rooms and hitting buttons attached to walls um and i kind of i guess it coincided with making games like that so that was my first kind of venture into alt controller games was my you know experience of i guess you know, the games that I was making with a lot of physical interaction just got bigger and bigger. And then, like, I moved to Bristol, uh, which is where I live now. Um, and 15 minutes down the road from me, there is an improv theatre. Um, and I went down to the improv theatre and I had a great time watching a show and then got chatting to the performers afterwards and kind of realised, like, they, there was this amazing kind of... It was like the, the process of doing good improv and... Making a good game, you know, particularly an old controller game or a kind of social party game, that process was actually very, very similar because there's a lot of, you know, you've got to listen to your other performer. You've got to listen to the people that you're, you know, that you're performing with. You've got to play nice. You've got to have good game. 
you know, you've got to set things up for them. Yeah, there's literally a concept game yes, of the scene. Yes. Like, and I think it was particularly fascinating that they used the word game to describe what they did. And I realized, like, that's like when my games really clicked with people, that was the interaction that I was having with the players is that I was, you know, giving them a prototype with the hope that they would, you know, pick up bits with it, run with them in certain ways and, you know, have fun, but fully expecting it them to come with their own interpretation of what the game is and how to win and how to play best and how to have fun with it that I wouldn't expect. And then it's my job as a designer to respond to that and then give them something back which kind of takes what they've been doing and enjoying and kind of makes that even better. And through all of that interaction, I got to thinking, I would love to make a make games for the stage. I would like because this environment where you've got, you know, I have this one to one interaction with kind of handfuls of people at, you know, events where I take new old controller games. But what if you did something for a room of like a hundred people and they could have that same kind of opportunity to to add something of their own flavor to it? And so that's that's where the concept of the playable show came from. As you mentioned, you have this background already with games where you've made games mm. well before you started working on these shows. How about a comedic background? Did you take any courses? Did you get any kind of education to better prepare for that? Not really. Like, I uh, I was, like, when I was a kid, I used to go to, like, after-school drama classes when I was, like, 11 or 12. And I did apply to audition to be Harry Potter, but I never got called to audition. Um, so that's the closest uh, to a performance career I had up until this point. Um, up until that, like... Uh, that aside, like I used to do conference talks uh, quite a bit, um, and I think I was just naturally confident, just like unafraid of being on stage. So you know, I they do scratch nights at the improv where it's like uh, not scratch nights, so jam nights where there's a crowd of thirty of you in the room. You put your names in the hat, and it's basically anyone can come up and play some short improv games or short improv scenes. I had a lot of fun doing that. But honestly, I, you know, I didn't have any background or training. I was just kind of decided I wanted to do it and was a bit fearless about it. <laughs> With the games, uh, it looks like, you know, I, I have not, of course, seen these shows myself, but some of them are adapted like video games. Like they, you can mm. see the, the connection and then some of them are yeah. more like completely physical, entirely physical yes. experiences. And like, which would you say between those two was harder to develop. So, I mean, the process for creating these games, like the original, the first iteration of the show was I had a game, uh, so Codex Bash, which was designed to be set up in exhibitions, which I realized, oh, if I spread the props all around the audience, this could become an audience-led game. And so that was kind of game number one. I had a game played using barcode scanners and sort of vests with barcodes on them and having a player run around the room trying to zap the barcodes. That was created newly for the show. I had uh, the Power Team, which is this kind of Power Rangers-themed games with tablets attached to people's bellies. Um, so they act as human buttons. And then, like... Uh, 
one using swimming pool inflatables, and then a bunch of stuff using kind of hacked versions of Sonic the Hedgehog games. And, you know, that stuff that I, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog games were stuff that I'd made just kind of on my own, just exploring, and had no idea what I wanted to turn them into. (laughs) I was like, okay, this idea of splitting up a controller so the controller's only four buttons, each person has one button each, but they don't know what their button does until they press the button and watch Sonic move on the screen, and then they have to communicate with each other to move Sonic around, and then every 30 seconds all the buttons shuffle around, so you have to keep on figuring out who's got what buttons. And that's something like I made because I thought it would be a fun thing to do, and then went, okay, I've created something really cool and have no idea what to do with it, and that ended up being part of the first playable shows. That was one of the first games in the Scrambled Eggman show. I mean, to answer your question of, like, the the process of these creating these games, it doesn't usually come so linearly as, okay, I, I want to make something that's very gamey, or I want to make something that's very physical. Um, it's really... Like, I will see an object or a device or an existing game that I find is particularly interesting and I will play around with it and try and find what is what game does this thing want to be made into and then from that figure out is there something that's suitable for a show in there? Where would it fit in a show? You know, that's another big comp- you know thing to figure out. So with the Incredible Playable Show, which is for um, games which are largely very physical, not very traditional video gamey, and, you know, using a lot of physical props. But there is a kind of increasing amount of gaminess in them because I don't want to lose the audience at the beginning. And a lot of people coming into the show may not necessarily be, you know, video game people. You know, they might not play a lot of video games. They might see, oh, video games is is what my kid plays or what my partner plays or whatever, but they're not what I do. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just here to watch, you know? And part of the show is making people who come in feeling like, you know, that they are, they're not allowed to be involved. If they come into the room with that feeling, my hope is that by the end of the first game, they should be feeling totally welcome and totally free to come up take to the stage, join in, throw props around, and things like that. And so one of the ways to do that is to open the show with games that don't really look like traditional video games. You know, they don't look like Pac-Man. They don't look like Sonic. You know, they look like the Matching Pairs game. You know, the, the game I always open with, with uh, barcode scanners on people's bodies, is the one. It's the game where you flip over cards and you see if the pictures match. People know how to play that game without having this explained to them. So the only weird thing they have to get used to is someone running around the auditorium with a barcode scanner. And that's Just kind of how... Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then over time, you can introduce things with a bit more complexity. Like, okay, here's, here's a maze. You have to pay attention to which things you're scanning on which inflatable octopus you're scanning them um, because you need to navigate a maze. And there's an added level of complexity to, you know, challenges like that. But to get the whole room feeling like they can engage with that level of complexity, you need to kind of meet them at the beginning with a level of simplicity that says, yes, I can join in. Yeah, that makes sense. That mirrors a lot of what I 
have come to understand about improv comedy and like the, right. the shows I've been a part of where, yeah, it's like you have to introduce people to the idea of improv and like this might be the first time they've ever seen it. And yes, especially with like having done comedy sports shows, which is a, a particular brand of improv comedy and like right. what that means. I can totally relate to the idea of building up the uh, knowledge or the teaching of people on what goes on in the show mm. i mean so with comedy sports are you talking like i guess something like whose line is it anyway um where there's these you know short games with kind of a i guess they largely have a kind of concept of some kind of concept of winning inside of them or yes or winning yeah. or failing yeah the the ta- one of the taglines is with comedy sports the points do matter <laughs> but i think it's something that i've thought about a lot because games with points and scores and winners and losers like these themes don't you know we offer i i i certainly feel like within the game design sphere we often find ourselves looking down on those as kind of they push people away you know you know they seem competitive and when you have something that's competitive you create a kind of in group and an out group and and i think that's true to an extent but i think you you get a thing when you have games where there's a concept of winners and losers that you don't have to explain it. People know what the game is and why they, you know, what are they trying to do in the game? Um, if they're an audience member, why am I invested in the drama of what's going on? And it's very easy to convey that when you have red team, blue team, you know, winning team, losing team. And so I think creating an inviting show is... You want to invite people in, but sometimes that competitive aspect can be really helpful in inviting people in because it means they don't have to think about why am I here? Part of yeah, the, the instant stakes or the instant understanding of the stakes even is uh, very beneficial. And that's kind of, my, I, I don't know if this is like a hot take or anything, but like why I think so many games still even now fall back on like the idea of lives or Mm. death being the end of a playthrough because like that's something that's very easy for anyone picking up the game to understand dating back to Space Invaders. Yes, there's a sense of drama there that does not need to be explained. And I mean, and this isn't to say that, you know, games which do not have a concept of, you know, winning or losing or things like that, like... That's not to say there's anything wrong with them. Um, Definitely I guess not. Yeah, yeah. What I'm, what I'm really trying to want to get at, you know, the book ritual, for example. There is no way to win or lose that game. It's, it's just a conversation with a book, and that is by, you know, that is by design. That is by intent. And if you added a concept of winning the book ritual, then the book ritual, you wouldn't be able to make the same kind of emotional connection to it because tearing pages out of a book would have a utility to it. It would be like doing it right or wrong. And your interactions with the book would no longer to be with how do you feel permanently damaging or losing this object? And they would become about is this the strategically right thing to do? And so, you know, in that case, having, you know, winners, losers, points or whatever, currencies would take you out of the experience um, and it's actually one of the early kind of prototypes for the game that became the book ritual used a book that you tore apart. And in that game, the text of the game was inside the book that you were tearing up. 
But the problem with that is that it made tearing up the book a question of what do I feel is economical? What, which pages are okay to lose now? Which is a very, it's a very different mindset to what I wanted because it's, that's a mindset that makes you go, you're thinking about your tactical interactions with the book rather than your emotional interactions with the book. So, I mean, with all of these things, I, th- I think from making games for the stage, from making games for exhibitions and, you know, games to be played in museums and things, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of features in games and play that we kind of take for granted where you take away the kind of the traditional expectations like a controller or, a, you know, it's just one of you on a sofa or something, you know, you change the environment and you realize that there is a power and a meaning to all of these little devices that we use in games, like points, like competition, like, you know, player one, player two, um, red team, blue team, and that these kind of assumptions that people bring in with them can be quite a useful tool in getting them to have the experience you want to have. So making it easy to understand what the games are because there's, you know, because you don't need to explain what it means to win this game means that people don't feel uncomfortable coming up to the stage because they know what they're in for. They don't have to decipher what the game is. They can feel confident. I know what's going on. So yeah, I guess they're all tools. Well, Alistair, I I think we've used our tools of conversation (laughs) to achieve a very, very good conversation here. And I just want to thank you you. very much for that. I do have one final question that... So there is one last question I do ask everyone who comes on the podcast and is, in truth, a a three-part question. And it relates to Pokemon because I feel like there's a general commonality for people who've either played the Game Boy games or watched the cartoon or they played Pokemon Go a bunch. If there was one Pokemon that you could have as a pet, one Pokemon you could be, and one Pokemon you could eat, which would they be? (laughs) Oh. So, okay, Pokemon to have as a pet. I'm I'm not going to say pet. I'm going to say friend, you know? Going to use the vocabulary of the the game, um, of the... Of the game and the show, you know, these are not these are not pets. These are not belongings. These are friends. Uh, Chesnot, Chesnot from X uh, X and Y, and partly because that's the game that I was playing uh, during making the book ritual, and so I have a kind of personal connection to you know while I was kind of going through all this uh, sort of going back over these difficult memories and that um, I would kept on going back to this big cuddly long armed. Um, buddy (laughs) (laughs) and so you know i've got a special connection to um, my big cuddly long-armed friend chesnot so the one to eat is like i'm a vegetarian so like even the plant ones there feels like there's something slightly off about that what if you Um, were to eat the the byproduct of a pokemon like you know bulbasaur probably well, I mean, not not that kind of byproduct, but just okay. like I'm sure the plants like shed leaves at some point. Ah, like an executor yes. will have fruit that it bears because it's a tree. Yes, I do genuinely like leeks. I I do enjoy leeks, so I could just go with farfetch, but that does feel like a cop out. Um, 
So let's go like bell sprout. I think bell sprout would taste like a spring onion. Like I say that as if, oh yeah, that's a really obvious, boring answer. And then I go, oh, there's one that's like literally an ice cream. I, I don't so, think anyone has ever answered bell sprout. Really? So I, I, oh, bell sprout. No one's ever, have people answered the ice cream one? Yes, the ice cream one yeah. has come up. Okay, that that's good. Bell sprout with soy sauce, and I, I think would go really nicely. Yeah, you know they they wear the leaves as a dress. I'm sure they've mm. got a few to give, and <laughs> humanely give. Yeah, but all the flavors in the head. <laughs> you you know by looking at it that all the flavors in the head. I trust you. I did not know <laughs> if, uh, that myself. <laughs> so the final one was which one would I like to be? Oh, uh, Mister Mine. Mister Mine. Mine. I I yes. Like so, you know, in the uh, in the movie, they have the Mister Mime, and it's doing all the miming stuff, and I'd, like that was absolutely brilliant. I would like to be able to do that. Um, I'm also generally quite a clumsy person, and so to be able to like do all those kind of mime actions with that level of precision would fill a hole that I have in my life. <laughs> well, excellent. Okay, yeah. So that leaves us with. Uh... Jeez, Chesnot as a pet or a friend? Chesnot as a, yep. <laughs> as, a, as a traveling companion. As a best friend. <laughs> In a world we must defend. To train them is your cause. So, I mean, it <laughs> yeah. all tracks. Who is really being trained? Um, is Chesnot being trained or am I being trained? Is, tra- is Chesnot teaching me how to be a better person? Wow. That's... Jeez. This could require. They should let me make a Pokemon game. I'd have fun with it. One one more thing from Bitbatch. They (laughs) they had a uh, like a please don't sue us Pokemon Snap live game there. Oh wow! So they would have they had like a corner of the room cordoned off, and a bunch of like Beanie Babies and other like you know stuffed animals and stuff, and they would stick them through like holes in this fence. Oh my and you God. had to take your phone out and like take photos of them. That's and then amazing. there was even a Professor Oak there who would like go and like grade them and be like, oh, you got it nice and centered in the photo. He, uh, here is bonus points for that. Oh, God, I love that kind of stuff. That sounds so cool. It was that... super clever. I was really impressed. Wow. Do, are they based in Chicago? Do I have to fly out to Chicago to see that? I don't know. I, I guess they would have to be. I mean, I'm, maybe they they traveled for the exhibit. <laughs> I I'm not sure. Okay. Well, now I'm waiting with bated breaths for the for the planes to open up again. Well, and that, in, until then, just thank you so much, yeah, again for coming on. Uh, oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Is there anywhere that people can keep track of your latest work? Uh, yes. Uh, on my uh, my Twitter feed is at a g h s o n. That's a g a i t. C-H-E-S-O-N. And my website is alistairhison.com. I guess my name will be in the show notes, will it? Yes, yes, it will. That's probably easier than me uh, trying to listen over and over to me reading out 70 letters. (laughs) (laughs) Look in the show notes.com. That's the one. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. (laughs) 
And we are back from break. Shelby, just uh, thank you so much for joining me to talk about iCarly this week. And we'll be sure to have you back soon to talk about the games we've been playing. Uh, Until then, uh, is there anywhere people can find you that you wish to be found where they can find you and talk about things that you want to show them because you've been found? So the easiest way to find me um, is if you drop... Uh, a couple of Cheetos on the edge of your bed, you'll see a hand reach out and grab them. And that's because I'm under there. Um, But I can also be found on Instagram at Shelby underscore fawn and on Twitter at the same handle. Awesome. And as for us, we can be reached by email at so many bits podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, we're so many bits on there. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at so many bits. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please rate, interview, or download from Simplecast or stream via Spotify. We play games, twitch.tv slash so many bits, Wednesday and Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Central Time. Gosh, we've been playing a bunch recently. Uh, there's been uh, whew, uh, Monster Prom, uh, Ninjala. I played all the way through Vice Project Doom. I uh, finished up Final Fantasy VI after a lengthy time playing that. But as you can probably tell, like lots of different games get played on there and uh lastly just uh thank you very much for listening have a great summer